Welcome back to IntelliGame Radio. I'm Josh Boykin, founder of IntelliGame and your host for the hour. Well, roughly an hour. Here at IntelliGame, we try to focus on the stories in gaming, the lessons we learn about ourselves and each other through the narratives created along the way. Sometimes the biggest lessons come from the games themselves, the tales woven by writers, the sandboxes created by designers. Sometimes the biggest lessons come from other players we bring along for the ride. Teammates in Apex Legends, fellow chefs in Overcooked. We grow together, discover each other's strengths and weaknesses. Sometimes still, the biggest lessons we learn come from the people who craft the systems we play in. The writers, programmers, designers. The people who agonize over decisions big and small, who bleed a part of their life experience into their creations. It's part of the creative process. Perhaps it's unfair for me to talk about the biggest lessons. There's no trophy or achievement for biggest educational experience. And oftentimes we don't even know the true value of a lesson until far after we've learned it. I'm lucky that IntelliGame provides me a space to learn all these kinds of lessons from various spaces firsthand. I can not only play these games, but have a space to discuss them with others and talk with members of the industry. There's something special about hearing from another person directly about their experiences, not in a tweet or a meme, but with context, emotion, space. It's the exchange that creates the power, giving and taking the chance to listen, to respond, creating moments that bind you together. It's creating more chances for everyone to have these first-hand engagements, not just experiencing someone else's narratives, but making their own that's inspired me in recent months. This is what we do with our games all the time. We converse, giving them our ideas and inputs, and they respond in kind, sometimes in completely unpredictable ways. And unlike other mediums, which remain static and our interpretation changes with our experience, games are made to shift and flow with our changing input. They're a space made for interaction, for feedback. We create narratives together. So yeah, I'm convinced. It's these co-created narratives that are part of what make games so powerful. It's these narratives that transform us. And it's why the narratives we create with each other shape our lives, help heal pain or inflict it, deepen connection or destroy it. Narratives are key. So I guess that brings us to this episode's lineup. For episode two, Narrative, I speak with Zalavir Nelson Jr., the narrative director behind space comedy Hypnospace Outlaw, the short-form semi-existential narrative Can Androids Pray, as well as his current project, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. His blending of humor and vulnerability lends some insight into how he creates his narratives and why they resonate with so many people. From there, we revisit a 2016 article about Overwatch and its narrative dissonance. Finally, we wrap up with a game recommendation from Jenny Wyndham, learning about the ways she's reflected on her own life through the experiences in this week's selection. Stay tuned, folks. Zalavir Nelson Jr., welcome to the podcast. It's uh, good to have you here. It's great to be here. The IntelliGame podcast is a refreshing break from a very difficult week. <laughs> it's. I I feel like the 
the week difficulties have kind of have varied for a bunch of different folks. But yeah, it seems like across the board, everybody's like this. I'm ready for next week. That's fine. I could, I could <laughs> That's bring the thing, next week though. On. As much as uh, general world stuff and personal stuff intermix to create a hellstorm of a week, I'm not particularly trying to advance the week. If anything, I just want to hold the next week back. I'm like, hey, let's delay <laughs> next week for maybe a couple of weeks to make sure it has the polish and that the team doesn't have to crunch to bring <laughs> us the best result possible. And we'll just really nail this week and get everything we need done so that next week can be really, really good when it arrives in Q2 of 2021. <laughs> you know, it is it is surprising to me. So we, we I believe we met the first time at Game Devs of Color Expo. Yes. And uh, Although and I had is, known of you before then. I'm, which I'm... I'm slightly surprised by it, but I, I now I will take it as a compliment. But I also I, I it has been interesting seeing and seeing you at Pack South and getting to hang out with you at Pack South and talking about uh, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. Your ability to just like channel humor in any given situation is shocking to me. I don't know how how you do it. Is is comedy just something you sort of consistently dive into i the way i i think about comedy i think is a little bit unique uh when i listen to spotify i always just throw every single song i like into a big old jumble because if i have themed playlists i i can be in a mood of course but uh i don't like being in a single mood when i look at uh the many situations that life provides or about writing games, I'm often confronted with this idea that humor is one of those few fields that really can go anywhere. And it is an upending agent. It is designed perfectly to ensure that you can be thoughtful, you can be sad, you can be serious, and you can still have this element of levity that ties it all together. It's a binding agent. And seeing all of these things as a coexisting element, I think, is a critical part of my career and how I can, you know, talk about living in Italy for two years and dodging neo-Nazis in the streets of Varese, Italy, with uh, some amount of levity. I was surprised that you had traveled as much as you had when, when we chatted a bit. What took you out of the States and what brought you back? Well, I was an army brat, which, of course, takes you a lot of places, but... I also came to an awareness very early that seeing people matters in a very tangible way. Internet friendships are fantastic. I have people that I would quite literally trust with my life who have mainly known via computer, but solidifying those uh, relationships and those conversations in person, there is this just this little extra element there. The the spice of getting to hug Josh in person that uh, brings all of those things together. So I looked for as many opportunities to travel as possible. And this is actually where diversity scholarships and the conversation around them becomes very uh, tangible because I am an army brat, you know, lower, lower middle class economic bracket. I can't afford to travel all around the world, really, outside of where my family already is. So the fact that in the 
modern day, there's often a lot of scholarships and applications and opportunities you can take to, uh, as a person of color or as a marginalized person, find the same sort of benefits that you might have being in the past, uh, a really rich white guy with a really rich white dad who knows really another really rich white guy who's just like, oh yeah, I'll take you to PAX on my private jet with me. And you just have to be (laughs) at the booth. Like there's all these theoretical situations about how people get into games, how people get into events and diversity applications really lay that foundation bare in a lot of ways. They present an opportunity for people who would otherwise never be able to go to Pack South, for example. There was no way I was going to be able to buy a booth and then pay for my transportation and my hotel. I happened to be in the Packs Together booth, though. I received an opportunity through the hard work that I put in making this airport for aliens currently run by dogs to showcase it in an environment where my booth costs would be paid for it. I just had to make sure I was there. And without it, the amount of people who have gained joy from my work, the amount of opportunities I have had would have been non-existent. I'm, I'm deeply thankful that we are in an environment where these types of opportunities are available, and I seek to uh, defend them uh, at every opportunity. I was surprised that PAX Together existed at PAX South. I sponsored think. by Red Bull. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't forget the sponsored by Red Bull. Um, you know, I, w- I was surprised it was there, and I think part of it is because uh, PAX has always to me, and I think a number of other folks held a bit of a reputation for being uh, a bit of a bastion for what we would consider typical gamer culture. And the ability for Houston gamers to come together and put together this section of games that focus on marginalized creators and stories that you might not experience in other places in packs, it looked like it was a really big success. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like showing in San Antonio, and I guess how you felt before and after the show. An airport for aliens currently run by dogs all came together because of an event that NYU Game Center runs every year called No Quarter. No Quarter takes four developers. Get it? Because quarter and quarters for oh, arcade. quarter. No, 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 no quarter. There's, there's no quarter, but there is a quarter because they get four. They get four, four really exciting independent game developers to make whatever as long as it's finished within the next three to four months and they give you a chunk of money to do it not a lot but it's enough to definitely get a passion project or uh, a uh, a silly little thing off the ground so when they reached out to me i was in a deeply burnt out place i had recently spent a lot of time doing parachute jobs on a number of projects when they came with that opportunity you know this is the same showcase that birthed Nidhogg. That's where Nidhogg debuted. This is where oh, wow. Flambeer has been. I, of course, said yes, because it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and a place to potentially test out, can we make games more reasonably? Is there a way that I can do all of the other things of my life and make this game without killing myself? I am deeply of the opinion that the business and production side of games and the creative side of games are not at odds. They are one and the same and actually working within the challenges and constraints of a business mindset, even placing artificial constraints on a project will produce a level of creativity and interests that wouldn't be possible otherwise. So I said yes, and I decided to test out a lot of theories I've had about 
how to run a project, and how to build a thing. It was going to be an airport for aliens, but I used a temporary picture of a stock photo of a dog for the receptionist as a joke to myself while we were figuring out the core of the game. And because this is my first time, I've been a narrative director for some time now, but because this is my first time hands-on in-engine, building props, making environments, setting up things, building out content in the 3D environment, I didn't realize how large the player was supposed to be in comparison to other objects. And <laughs> next thing I know, I press play for the first time on this project, and I got an eight-foot tall Jack Russell Terrier towering over me, asking me if I want to take it to Uranus. So I pivoted to dogs. I was like, this makes me happy. Is this legal? Is this okay to feel this way about making a game? <laughs> but uh, what it resulted in is something that made a really large impact at the event of No Quarter and that I decided to continue developing. However, as I continued to develop it, I did realize that the balance we were striking is not just intentional, but can be very much hard for people to understand. Uh, for context, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs is a first person open world comedy adventure game where you meet strange stock photo dogs, solve their problems, fly across a universe of dynamic simulated alien airports and find time to spend with the people you love when you and your fiance are the last human beings left in the universe. That's got inherently a lot of humor in there, a lot of nuance in there, and absurdity, like stock photo dogs rotating to greet you and being able to pet any dog at any time with an infinite number of hands as you can in this game. I looked at this game I was making and I started to have conversations with like publishers and so on. And I was aware that one, this entire thing falls apart if every piece of this is not completely on point and intentional. But two, even if it is completely on point and intentional, there's still going to be people who don't get it. So coming into PAX South, my thought was, I know I'm making something special. I know that the Patreon is growing. People clearly already think it's something special. And making the game itself makes me happy, which is something I haven't experienced in games for a very long time. So what I wanted to learn was, can a general audience connect with it on a busy show floor when... They've got 30 seconds instead of three years of knowing me on Twitter to love a game. Right. And the response was an overwhelming yes. I went from being, from believing in this project, but uh, being somewhat pessimistic about its future to folks coming to me quite fervently from publishing entities telling me this could be a six, seven figure game. Can wow. we talk? It. It, it single-handedly showed me that uh, I don't want to say I was right, but also <laughs> if the, the thing that I'm making, I love it and I am building it so intentionally so that other people can also connect with this incredibly strange balance, whether it's a pack show floor or your computer screen, people can find it, they'll follow it, and they'll find value in it of a incredibly successful first time showcase. We were the debut of PAX Together. Um, the most 
popular booths, the, the the biggest booths, not just of the show of the thing, but of Pack South, were Boyfriend Dungeon and my game, which no one has ever heard of before. So walking away from Pack South, I I'd say the greatest thing wasn't just the contacts made and the incredible folks who now follow the game and are in the Discord, or even the new patrons we've gained, or any sort of external sign of success. Mm-hmm. It is just the quiet knowledge that what I'm building is working. And if it's working, all I got to do is finish it. Well, that was the podcast. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You talked a little bit about the ability to be able to attend an event like PAX South and how that was in, in no small part because of because of packs together, because the, the because of was, Red Bull, yeah, because of Red Bull. I I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what is it about being a creator now, and particularly being a a, a creator of color, being uh, being a black creator. Do you feel like it changes your your sort of style of presentation, the stories that you want to tell? How is that influencing your your creation process? I say it affects my creation process much like it, like my faith affects my creation process. I am a Christian believer in Jesus Christ, so on. Uh, mm-hmm. I was quite concerned about how uh, this would make me received in an industry where, like, our uh, top narratives are things like uh, Bioshock, where it's like kill the guys who sound Christian but really aren't. Sure, becoming comfortable and confident with myself, with my creative instincts, with the positive impact I wanted to make on others and on the world around me, becoming comfortable and safe within that and following that path, it hasn't limited me in a major way. If anything, it's just given me this, what feels like an additional tool in my tool chest. Like I'm in tune with myself to the degree where it's like, here's a bit of my faith. Here's a bit of my history of of being a black person. Here's an environment where if I bring these things to the table you would never even realize they were there but the personal experience and the um depth of the creation behind it means that you feel that depth anyway that's what excites me about being a a creator of color and a creator of faith in games because let's be honest especially in a time where uh hedging bets uh in hit driven industries is becoming a prevalent strategy Having the ability to see yourself and your background and the things outside of the potential norm as a engine for creation where everything in your life, everything that you are contributes to what you can bring into the world, uh, it means that you can make things that really stand out. I mean, I made a... 15-minute game about angry femme mech pilots at the end of the world and God with Natalie Clayton and Priscilla Snow called Can Androids Pray. It uh, had a front-page feature on itch.io, did really well there, and then did even better on Xbox freaking One. This is where people play Gears of War 5. And our game did really well there. The ability to see the world and your output into the world as yet further opportunity to just make cool stuff uh that feel even for people who are not in your demographic 
or don't like your demographic. I've met people who really, really don't like people of faith who have connected to my games, not just in general, but in my games about faith, because the sincerity connects in a human way, even if the uh, specific subject material is not in their wheelhouse in any way whatsoever. We're all humans, and we're making art. Might as well make that that art as human as possible. And if I don't wall off those pieces of myself, being black or as a person of faith, then I can be more human, and I can help other people feel more human. You mentioned earlier this experience that you've had as a, as a narrative director. The games that you've worked on have been fairly atypical style games, but big standouts. How do you feel like this reaches into sort of your your narrative style this is potentially a large question but to answer one facet of it um this ties directly into why i love comedy i can make a game about death you have 15 minutes to consider the meaning of life and of your death as a femme mech pilot on an abandoned world and also consider what you believe right before you die that's the entire scenario i i asked myself why aren't more games like bottle episodes? Why don't we have the bottle episode equivalent in games? And then I made it. Uh, and there's puns in there. There's a pun in there that's really bad. There are <laughs> jokes. There's people at a certain point just like straight up cursing out each other because this is what it means to be human. I I love comedy because as a binding agent, it makes what would otherwise be unpalatable compelling enough to press the next button, go to the next waypoint, see what happens next. Because what comedy does is it says, this is a really dark and scary place, but you remain. You remain human. You remain uh, yourself. This is safe. You are okay, even if the situation itself and the characters within it are not. I do work on a lot of atypical things, but that calibration, that universality... And the intention that makes them makes even the unpalatable palatable is a deep part of my work. And I do believe that comes from a, a partial reaction to seeing our world collapse into this set of knowns, knowns and uh, just for use and algorithmic suggestions. I'm looking at that and I'm saying, well, you really like. Uh, you really like stories about mechs. What if <laughs> there was two mech pilots and there's no shooting and they're at the end of the world and they're about to die? Can I make this story connect with you? Can you even open yourself up to a mech story that isn't like anything you've seen before? And the overwhelming answer is yes. I believe people do want to... Sometimes you want to sink into the, a warm bath of the circle, but sometimes you also just want to have... 15 minutes in another world where you occupy a different mind space and take this invisible little piece of it back into whatever you were doing. You were in that world, now it's gone, now it's done, but you are just a little bit different. I feel like all games should do that, and that's why I try to bring into everything I make. And that's, and that's true regardless of whether it's a small game or one of these common denominator uh, large games or products because I, I believe that these those are just as worthy of research and study and of appreciating what they're doing artistically as anything else because, let's be honest, 
there's some really nuanced things in AAA, for example, that will that are not called out on a major scale because it's Call of Duty doing it. Right. Uh, and Call of Duty is, as we all know, <coughs> not formulaic. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I was playing um, Sniper Ghost Warrior 3 a couple of years ago. And yeah. The, it's interesting because a lot of us in sort of the indie niche game space don't want to pay a whole lot of attention to a game like Sniper. But when you first start that game off, and it's a first-person shooter, but the first thing you see is, you know, your the character you're playing as holding a, a cross attached to, you know, his necklace, and then, like, tucking it into his, uh, into his shirt, and then having this conversation with his brother, who he basically, like, criticizes for being... Uh, you know, being part of faith when convenient. Oh, you want to be part of the church when you want to get married, that kind of thing. And that's not a discussion that we see a lot of in AAA or in the game spaces in general. But when we look at the sales of a game like Sniper, we have to acknowledge like there are a lot of folks for whom that storyline, that discussion is relevant. It's resonant. And I think that there is something to that idea of how do we find... And how do we pay attention to the stories that resonate with not only ourselves, but with other people? I think part of that movement will very much emerge from detaching ourselves from the uh, timely demand of games and games journalism. There is this unfortunately widespread opinion that outside for of uh this widespread opinion or at least this widespread path that is being followed that says outside of nostalgia projects like the uh snes mini you have a game that's more than a year old more than five years old and it's no longer relevant it also if it came out before a certain period so we're still talking about gone home in 2020 Tacoma came out, the, the, the follow-up from this same studio came yep, out. from Fulbright. And, yes, thank you, from Fulbright. Came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. How long did we talk about that? Right. Though we should be talking about it, like, because Amazon University, uh, we've, we've played Tacoma on stream a couple of times. Um, the themes that Tacoma brings up in regards to uh, late stage modern capitalism, uh, the sort of power of these hyper corporations are so incredibly relevant and deserve to be talked about more often. But you're right, uh, it is very difficult to find a way to pay an extended amount of attention uh, to any individual game that seems to come out recently. I, I, this is one of the things that worries me as an independent as an independent developer. Um, I I feel that the concern about for example, game subscription services is somewhat um, is somewhat overhyped, particularly given that people like Xbox and so on are managing their subscriptions and their strategies towards their subscription services uh, very judiciously. Uh, and if you look at the numbers, games that go through those systems, like Game Pass, actually get bought more. But... The thing that worries me is this idea of making a really, really good game, a game that hits really hard, does really well. A lot of indies have had this happen. Uh, and tell me if you've observed the same cycle. You then say, okay, this 
It is 2012. I've released this indie game, and it did bananas. I might not have to work again for the rest of my life. I'm going to make a second game. I'm going to make it as good and as big as possible, and it's going to take five years, but I have the money and the time to make it right. You come out in 2017. No one gives a crap who you are. Mm-hmm. No one... Everyone might still be talking about your old game, but if you appear on interviews, if people talk to you or think about you, you're always connected to that first title. Uh, and, of course, you've invested five years of really, really good first title money into something exponentially larger, taking the big bet again, and that collapses. We've seen that happen several times now. So, and yeah. it's part of the reason why I also advocate for not just smaller games, but more uh, production-friendly titles, more games that are specifically made with an awareness of uh, their commercial environment, not just the biggest or the best, but, hey, this is a game that we spent two ga- months making, and it looks good, and it's polished, It'll take you about an hour to play through to fit this specific space in your life. Here's a bigger game that takes four to six hours. Uh, we're only going to dedicate this amount of time to it because, to be honest, if it hits and it does really well, great. But if it doesn't, I need to survive. And everyone who was on my team needs to survive. Getting a widespread perspective of uh, production and biz dev things right along the side of the creativity it's something i i really want to see and i want to help spread because it will help save us from that exact trend which i've seen happen too often to too many friends i feel like pretty much the entirety of this discussion is probably why you're at least a small part of why you're the keynote speaker for Neroscope this year <laughs> i have a lot of things i want to talk to people about i I've learned a lot. I've done a lot. I have intentionally thrown myself into the deep end of a lot of situations to learn as much as possible. And I don't think that that knowledge has any purpose unless it's passed on to others, uh, which is part of the reason that I'm thankful for spots like the Nariscope keynote and some other news that's going to come out soon. Yeah. Congratulations for that. Uh, as of as of recording, that news was just announced today. So um I, for one, am really excited to to see what you have to say on that uh, on that platform. I think if this podcast has been any indication, uh, there are a lot of things that the industry still has to learn and grow, and the, and the ways that we share that information with each other is our, how it happens. Part of part of the reason I love going to conferences is that every single time I go there, I also like I've discussed things that concern me and that I believe are important, or so on. Every time I go to a conference. That list updates, that changes, that shifts with experiences other people have had and so on, things that they've learned. We are, of all mediums, in such a crucial place of benefiting each other, of teaching each other, of rising together. Uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing that exchange of information and that concern for everyone's mutual well-being continue as we build the best medium for ourselves and the people who will come after us well 
we're wrapping up here. I asked this question to all the guests. I forgot to tell you I was going to ask you this question. So if you need a second, take your time. But okay. if you had to choose a game that you would ask somebody to play to get a sense of what you feel is important in the game space, perhaps you would call it your IntelliGame. What would that game be? The, the Cornerstone game. This is a really good question because it isn't a lock. If I had to identify one game that I would give to someone to say why games are important. Uh, this is a more recent thing I've played as these things usually tend to be when they're asked on podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> but I would actually say Tetris Effect. If I had to show one game to an alien race to say... Here's why the human race should be preserved. Here's why you do not erase us. Here's why human... Here's why... Here is the why of humanity. I would give them Tetris Effect. Tetris Effect is, of course, Tetris, which is very, very good. Uh, yep. And you can play it over and over and over again so the aliens would not return to destroy us for giving them a <laughs> one-hour game, which didn't give them enough replay value. Right. But the genius thing about Tetris Effect is that in a explicitly gameplay-focused environment, in a endless puzzle that is legendary and has uh, a whole lot of brand value to this day, the creator of Res, uh, of Project Eden, of all sorts of things, looked at that game and said, what if we made this a game about human connection? You are preaching to a choir on this one. I adore tetris effect it is it was it, almost my game of the year twice because they released it on pc and i was like yeah it's that good the thing about tetris effect is it it does look at this puzzle game at this legendary franchise and says what if this core thing that has made a given franchise legendary for generations now what if we made that the background for a synesthetic emotional experience about human connection across a variety of environments. Virtual, real, uh, fantastic, interstellar, or incredibly mundane. This is the first, Tetris Effect is the first time I played it, is one of the first times I played a game in a very long time where I felt that the game itself loved me, that it wanted to meet me where I was, that it wanted to hug me and show me the stars as if it was the first time I've ever seen them. And playing that game showed me actually the the way I wanted to make an airport family that's currently run by dogs. The reason that this world and this game is the way that it is is because I want to make a world that cares about you. After Dark Souls especially, I think there's such a movement to say, ah, what if we got players? What if we really got them? What if we made them feel it? <laughs> right? Even as a narrative designer, I've been in the position where I've been like, yeah, we want to we wanna really make them feel guilt and horror and pain and existential dread. Yeah. But making an environment that is <laughs> its entire explicit purpose is to say, I care about you right now in the time that we are together. I didn't realize that was the game I was making or that I wanted to make until Tetris Effect gave me the words.
It's Oliver Nelson Jr. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. You can find out more about Zalavir by going to his Twitter, at Rit Nelson. You can also support an airport for aliens currently run by dogs on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash strange scaffold. We did have to cut some of the interview for time. To listen to the full extended interview, swing over to the homepage in telegame.us starting tomorrow. During the interview, Zalavir talked about how AAA games should be studied because they have opportunities to present nuance as well as indie titles. I might have a soft spot in my heart for indie titles and the narratives that they create, but I also have to admit that there are a lot of really interesting things happening in the AAA space. Also, just the sheer power of large teams spending thousands of hours crafting these digital worlds that huge global audiences spend time in there's a power in that just from the sheer numbers. These are titles that, even if they don't always achieve what we would hope they would with the amount of power and responsibility that come with that, we still need to look at critically. This brings us to today's Director's Cut reading. A flashback to 2016, when a new Overwatch animated short had just been released. Overwatch has a reputation for crafting some really amazing lore, but Overwatch, as a multiplayer online shooter doesn't really integrate its lore into the ways that you progress in gameplay. So today's reading centers around the release of a digital short about a character named Bastion, a walking automated sentry turret who has consciousness and trauma, and the ways Overwatch's gameplay don't necessarily support the narrative that they try to create. Why is The Last Bastion stuck in eternal deathmatches? The stories in games can reach just as far into our souls as books, movies, music, and TV shows. We expect these kinds of experiences in photorealistic thrillers like The Last of Us, or playing games based on established franchises like The Walking Dead. But the short films coming out of Activision Blizzard's multiplayer shooter Overwatch show that deep characters and introspection can come from games of any kind. The most recent short, at the time, <laughs> The Last Bastion, tackles themes of post-traumatic stress while detailing the backstory of Bastion, a sentient sentry turret presented with a choice between peace and war. It's a gripping short and tells a great story born from the Overwatch universe, but it also begs questions about a game's responsibility to its own lore. Now, Obviously, I can't show you the short right now because this is a podcast, but if you do want to go watch the short, it is still available on YouTube, and though my relationship with Overwatch has changed, I still really respect this short, as well as the creators who shape the storylines and characters that show up in Overwatch. I stopped playing Blizzard games after the Blitzchung incident. A successful Hearthstone player won a tournament and in China, spoke for his support of the protests for democracy going on in Hong Kong. As a result, Blizzard countered saying that this was a misuse of their platform and suspended him from the game, as well as the casters who were involved, and also docked Blitzchung the tournament money that he'd won, as well as past tournament money as well. This stirred a bit of a international outrage, 
it was actually one of the few places where I've seen folks on both the right and the left here in the U.S. come to an agreement, and that was actually a little scary. <laughs> now, since the incident, as well as the outrage that came from it, Blizzard has released a statement, lowered the amount of time for the ban for both the casters and Blitzchung, and refunded Blitzchung his prize money. I haven't been back to Overwatch since then, and though I don't know exactly what it would take to bring me back into the game, I kind of hope that I still will get there at some point. I love the game mechanically. A lot of friends of mine who I respect and admire still play the game for their own reasons, which I also respect. But I've also noticed that not playing Overwatch has made time for other games in my life, and I've decided to prioritize that right now. Even so, the Overwatch machine chugs on, releasing new characters and storylines that are really important to a lot of people. And that's why I feel like this is still worth talking about today. The Last Bastion tells the story of Bastion Unit E54 as it awakens in a forest years after falling dormant. The war between humanity and sentient robots called Omnix in the Omnic Crisis is over, but still in recent memory for many. Disconnected from the network that provided its programming, Bastion explores the natural world for clues about its own existence. It even befriends a passing bird and embarks on a near snow-white level forest journey, until the sound of a woodpecker in the distance reactivates the Bastion's old defensive protocols with devastating effects. The last Bastion's story is one of a robot trying to find itself in a world no longer the way it left it, but it reaches beyond the game and into the effects of trauma and triggers. Sure, Bastion is happy in the forest and isolated from war, but even the innocent pecking of a woodpecker unexpectedly submerges Bastion back into its trauma. It runs from the forest because, even though it values the space, it can't trust itself to be there without hurting what it cares about. These are some of the consequences of post-traumatic stress disorder in reality a condition we generally think of for war-torn veterans struggling to reintegrate with society, but reaches much further than just those who've been on the battlefield. The struggle to overcome pains from our own past is something we all identify with, even without PTSD, which is part of what makes this short so powerful. It's what makes all the Overwatch shorts so powerful. Though they're full of nods to the game that seasoned players appreciate, they're first and foremost stories about our own cores, telling tales in ways such that even people oblivious to the game could still appreciate them. I'm just not sure how to appreciate them when I'm not oblivious to the game. Truth be told, I've started playing Overwatch again since the last Bastion's release, which I'm sure was part of the game team's plan. Watching the short reignited my interest in the franchise and got me to play a match, which got me to play another match, and so on. Still, there's something that feels wrong about the idea of learning that a character has war-induced PTSD, then subjecting it to kill after kill after death after kill in multiple death matches. Now, if this is an unfamiliar topic for you, this essay is essentially about what they call ludonarrative dissonance. Ludonarrative is a fancy academic term for the stories that are created within our gameplay, not just the, the actual written story or characters, but the actual mechanics of the gameplay that we engage and the ways that that creates a sort of storyline or experience for us. 
Ludonarrative dissonance, I think, is what we talk about more often. And ludonarrative dissonance is a disconnect between the gameplay that we engage in and the stories that we purport to be telling. This is a discussion that's happening more and more often in the game space and is more often used to critique the AAA space. I think about a series like Uncharted, where Nathan Drake, the Indiana Jones-style explorer, mows down hundreds if not thousands of people over the course of four games in, I, I guess, the search for treasure, but uh, it's he's, he's also kind of a mass murderer, so there's something there. But it's also a game, so yeah, ludonarrative dissonance. Overwatch's gameplay doesn't technically exist in the same realm as the lore. Much like League of Legends and other multiplayer-focused titles, the multiplayer combat isn't considered canon, and exists in a bubble separate from the developing story. Still, does it make sense as a creator of a game universe to take even just an avatar of a character trying to recover from the traumas of war and subject it to a life of eternal war? I love The Last Bastion and all the Overwatch shorts up to this point as prime examples of the stories that can come out of the world of video games, but this feels like a case of Overwatch having its cake and eating it too. By the end of the short, E54 is left with a choice, return to its old programming and seek war, or move on to a new and different life in the forest. Bastion retreats to the forest, which doesn't really create a space where it then enters into multiple escort and territory capture missions, gunning down the opposition in the world of multiplayer. The other Overwatch films provide justification for each character's participation in combat, which at least subtly reinforces the possibility of the haphazard roughhousing in the core game. Bastion's tale, on the other hand, works directly against that. Each of the Overwatch short films feels like a mini Pixar movie, bite-sized flicks made to hit like Toy Story or Inside Out. Pixar's messages, however, and Disney's by extension, profit by reinforcing their universes. Theme park attractions immerse attendees in the worlds of each intellectual property, creating a continuity between the participants' experience with the movie and the world they get to explore. Disney and Pixar video games do the same, creating new experiences within each IP, but adhering to the rules set by each universe. The player's experiences within Overwatch, on the other hand, directly contradicts the rules set up in the animated shorts. No matter how many times a character dies, they get back up and keep fighting. This combat leaves no scars mentally or physically, and the character's beliefs and goals won't prevent them from working alongside anyone else, no matter how good or bad they are. There's no opportunities for players to immerse themselves in a world where the Omnic Crisis is anything more than an in-joke for devoted players, where Tracer and Widowmaker's rivalry is more than window dressing, or where Hanzo's brotherhood with Genji leads him to redemption or demise. With so many players who find value in the themes set by those conflicts, and with Blizzard setting those themes front and center with each film, it seems all the worse that those themes vanish in the actual game. I appreciate Overwatch and the characters and world it brings to the table, but it feels somehow unfair that it tugs at my heartstrings with stories of trauma and potential loss, then tugs at my pocketbook and energy with hours of repeated killing and death. 
This isn't an ask to make all canon game stories correlate directly with their gameplay, but asking players to live in a realm of direct contradiction feels irresponsible. The Last Bastion is a great piece of cinema, but it feels sad that we tell a story where Bastion returns to a forest of peace, then still trap it in a world of war. It's interesting, thinking back on this piece, I recognize that there are tons of new characters that have been released, as well as storylines that they've ventured into, and new lore that they've released about old existing characters. Still, today, it seems that a common critique of Overwatch is that it does surface-level work. It provides representation by saying, here's a black character, here's a LGBT character, but doesn't really do the work of integrating that person's lived experience or representation into the universe. Since the last Bastion released, they have created another six additional animated shorts, including their cinematic for the release of Overwatch 2, titled Zero Hour. I honestly haven't watched, like, any of them. And I know that the lore is still really engaging, the graphics are gorgeous and everything, but... I'm just not attached to that portion of the Overwatch universe anymore. I'd still watch a film if it came out, don't get me wrong, but I just don't feel that tie to the narrative of the game. I'm sure that there are other people who feel differently, but for me, it still feels like a bit of a loss. Overwatch 2 seems to be promising more story-based gameplay, so we'll see what decisions they try to make with their new game. If you're like me, the mailboxes in your life provide a little bit of tension. Whether it's the physical mailbox full of ads and bills, or the digital mailbox full of ads and bills. A lot of ads and bills in 2020. Point of the story is, if you sign up for the Intelligame newsletter, you'll have a little piece of something familiar and fun in your inbox. Whether you sign up for Intelligame Recap, which will come to you every Friday, or IntelliPost, our micro-newsletter Monday through Thursday. Sign up over at intgm.us slash newsletter. That's intgm.us slash newsletter. It's not just the stories we find in games, but also the ways that we play them that shape our perceptions of the world around us. That brings us to this week's game recommendation by IntelliGame Club curator Jenny Windham. Start from point A and get to point B is essentially the goal of The Pedestrian, this week's game recommendation. But as I was playing, The Pedestrian became more about starting from B and working backwards. The Pedestrian by Sukum Arts was a game that I actually saw years ago, and it hooked me immediately with its unique premise. You play it by rearranging and connecting signs in order to traverse and advance through each area of the game. You start as a little pencil sketch on a blueprint and have the joy of wandering through a variety of sign types, whiteboards, notebook papers, street signs, digital signs, and more. And if you're like me, you'll find yourself really excited to see just what normal everyday signage could be made more magical and special because you get to use it as a place to solve puzzles. And it's a delight to experience. And even now when I walk around town after playing the game, I'm looking at signs a little differently. And I think that's pretty dang cool. And I haven't even really gotten to the fact that the music and the scale of this environment feels like it's straight out of a Disney Pixar movie. Uh, Ratatouille, perhaps. It's got a Parisian feel to it. The larger environments of these signs, the metro, a busy office, a city street, 
They're all slightly out of focus, but clearly full and bustling with objects, if not people. And this is a world that feels lived in and on the go, which makes the need for our small pedestrian figure to keep solving puzzles and progressing forward feel just really right. As the game progresses, the connections and order of operations require more and more brain power. So in typical puzzle platformer fashion, there are ladders and doors and boxes you have to pull, switches you have to flip, keys you have to find, and more that require you to connect each element, each sign, in just the right order to be able to get from point A to point B in 2D platforming style. What I loved most about this puzzle game, though, were the distinct steps that the developers embedded that you go through while solving each puzzle. Before moving your character forward, you have the opportunity to take a step back, literally, you press a button and the camera zooms back, movement is essentially paused for your character so you can get your bearings before you start manipulating all of the pieces. When I was a teacher, one of the techniques I used to design my units and lessons for my students was called backwards design. In a very condensed nutshell, it's starting the process by identifying your end goal and then planning out what you need to know or what you need to do to get there. And in an educational setting, the hope is that by designing with this end goal in mind, students and teachers can stay focused on the goal, you know, keep their eyes on the prize, if you will. And so in this game, I quickly realized if I knew the exit to the puzzle required a door to be opened, for example, the step prior to that would be to make sure I found the key first. For me, 2020 is my year of trying to get things done. But in playing this game, I realized that, like in the game, my projects aren't perhaps the type of things that I should rush into just to get them started. That perhaps I could be better served in the long run by taking a step back, trying to get maybe more of a bird's eye view to make sure that path is clear so I can ensure a successful run through and not get stopped, stuck, or have to restart because of poor planning in the first place, or perhaps no planning in the first place. And while it can be fun to occasionally fly by the seat of your pants and build the airplane as you're taking off, uh, this game was a very delightful but also poignant reminder that definitely planning can go a long way. If you're interested in The Pedestrian, you are in luck. Not only is it available on Steam, but there is a free demo in case you want to test the waters and try this out for yourself before making the purchase. So I hope you enjoyed this week's game recommendation, and I will talk to y'all next time. That was IntelliGame Club curator Jenny Windham. You can find more of her work on YouTube or Twitch at KimChika, or you can find her on Twitter at KimChika25. Alright folks, that does it for this edition of IntelliGame Radio. I've been your host, Josh Boykin. You can find me on Twitter or Facebook at Wallstormer. Keep an eye out for more IntelliGame content by going to the homepage, IntelliGame.us, or following us on Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at IntelliGameUs. Thanks to Zalavir Nelson Jr. for being part of the show this week, as well as to Jenny Windham for contributing our game recommendation. Keep an eye out for IntelliGame Club's relaunch at the end of this week, our book club-style game discussion group. Special thanks go out to our Patreon executive producers, Rachel Kelly and Janessa Olson. Thank you so much for the financial support you bring to the show. If you're not currently a patron but are interested in being one, swing over to patreon.com slash us. Finally, thank you for listening to the show this week. Until next time, keep IntelliGaming.